Good morning. Good morning. I can do this with or without a microphone. Good morning. Any better? Getting there? I probably need to keep talking. Yes? Okay, good. Brilliant. Um, my name is Matthew Westrom. I recognize a lot of you, but I know there's a lot of new faces in here. I go to the North Point campus, and um, we miss you guys a ton. Um, uh, I'm the dean of the chapel over at Cornerstone University, and I've been coming to Crossroads for four years, and um, uh, I have a word from the Lord for us today from Acts 21 through um, Acts 23. Let me start with this sort of introduction. Greg referenced already the 50-yard line. I don't want to become too football-obsessed. But have you noticed, like, the swirl of um, Tim Tebow? That's just kind of... Did you know last week when he threw that 80-yard touchdown pass, did you know that um, Google reported that people were searching his name for that hour afterwards? People searched his name 4,700 times a minute. Can you believe that? 4,700 times a minute, people were like, what's Tim Tebow? What's, what's the new thing on Tim Tebow? Like, okay, I think he's kind of like the newest example of our culture being celebrity-obsessed. Um, um, why do we follow celebrities? I want to kind of use that as our opening question here. Why do we follow celebrities? Why do celebrities have so much power over us? Here's a story. Um, it's the celebrities that I've met that I follow are too obscure for um, you to be into, and I apologize for that. But I have a friend who um, got a job when that um, Nike Town store opened in Chicago. He was kind of put in charge of the fourth floor, which had a bunch of soccer stuff in there. And so he was working up there. This is like 1999, and he, it's late at night. It's like almost closing time, and he's on the phone talking to somebody. Can you picture Cord on the phone because it's 1999, right? <laughs> Are you with me? I know some of you uh, Grand Valley students were born in 2004, so. There's a cord. It's like this. So he's talking on the phone. It's just about closing time. He's talking to one of his friends, actually, and he hears, like, the place is completely empty, and he hears, like, some footsteps coming up the, up the way, and he looks, and it's his store manager with a lady. And he's like, uh, I might have to go here. There's, there's some people here. And the store manager says, you know, just look around, anything you want, just let us know, we'll, we'll take good care of you. Um, I got to go downstairs, Mia, um, our associate will take good care of you. It's Mia Ham. okay? So I know some of you are really happy right now that it's Mia Ham. some of you have no idea who that is. <laughs> Biggest female soccer star ever, okay? Just use that, it's Mia Ham. she's uh, really pretty, she's really famous, she's really excellent at soccer, and so my friend is on the phone now. Uh, it's, it's, oh my goodness, it's uh, me, like, you know, there's an eight-foot poster of Mia Ham like, over here, right? And so, okay, Mia Ham's over here, so now it's, it's the fourth floor of the Nike store, it's him on the phone and Mia Ham, and she's looking at some stuff over here on some shelves, and he's on the phone over here, and she says, hey, these are a little high, could you help me get this? And my friend, his name's Dave Jennings, he says, oh yeah, just a second. Boom! <laughs> Cord, phone, ripped off wall, Dave falling down on his back. <laughs> Mia Hamm laughing at him. <laughs> He's like, I forgot that I was holding the phone. 
That's what he said to me. What is the power of celebrities? Almost as much fun as watching them rise is the compelling nature of watching them fall. I mean, just think through some recent celebrities that we were all about as we watched them rise and do great things and then watch them crash. Michael Phelps, the rise to Olympic champion, the fall to bong user. Tiger Woods, the rise to greatest golfer, the fall to worst husband. I mean, the American church, sadly, no exception to this. In 2009, there was a church that was doing a sermon series on the family. The name of the, church, the, name of the series was called Families at Their Best. And they decided to close their series. The concluding service would have an interview with John and Kate Goslin. Well, it seemed like a really great idea at the time, but before the weekend came, it became clear that the Goslins did not represent families at their best. Sadly, the couple separated and went through a messy divorce. Clearly, there are large forces that hire some of the brightest people and spend enormous amounts of money which are deeply invested in getting you to follow a celebrity. Twitter even uses that now. Follow this person. Isn't that interesting? Get, get in on this bandwagon, they say. Follow this, this girl. This is my, the curious phrase. Like her on Facebook. Like her. Isn't that interesting? Like, hey, like, like me. I got, I got an email from a friend. Hey, like me on Facebook. I was like... Wow. I mean, like two years ago, that phrase would have made no sense to us. Like me on Facebook. Wear shoes like this basketball player. Drink Gatorade like that football player for musicians. Play the same guitar as this guy in this band. In a thousand different ways, we hear this song. It begins with, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. But the song ends with, I am not a role model. And no, no, you're not. And I just wish I had heard that warning before I bought your jersey and put your poster in my kid's bedroom. Now, this is not a prophecy about Tim Tebow. Because far deeper than pointing out the greedy businesses or the flawed superstars, this brings a startling warning to me. What is it about me? What is it about us that chases after a hero? And then just to get practical, what are we supposed to look for in a hero so that we don't get fooled? And then to make it personal, what, how can I be the type of person worthy of being followed? Now, today we're going to look at a huge chunk of text. You're going to need your Bible today. This is the largest chunk of text that I've ever preached through. Um, Neil and I have kind of decided as we're finishing off the book of Acts um, we've hit a lot of the major themes already in Acts, and you're going to even see in today's passage a big chunk of repetition of stuff we've already covered. So we've decided to pick up the pace to try to get through the book as quickly as possible now. So we're going to be starting in Acts 21, verse 1, and we're going to continue through Acts 23, verse 11. Don't worry, I'm not going to read that entire thing. But this portion of Scripture shines a bright light on this question about following people. It shines a really bright light on that. But it also teaches us to ask some very different questions that will end up being much more helpful to us. Luke tells us the story in four big sections. The first begins in Acts 21, verse 1, and goes through verse 16. 
Could you stand with me as we uh, read God's word? Stand in respect for the God that speaks to us this morning and in anticipation of what he's about to say. Acts 21. When we had parted from there and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there in Tyre for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to them. And then we went on board the ship and returned. And they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. And we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray. Almighty God, your Son, Jesus Christ, is the Word, and in him is life, and that life is the light of men. May we, illumined by that Word, shine forth with the radiance of his glory, that Jesus Christ this morning may be known, that he may be worshipped, that he may be obeyed and followed to the ends of this earth. We pray this. In his name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon today has three main points and two bonus points, okay? In preaching classes, they tell you don't do this. They say, if it doesn't fit your main points, don't bring it up. It's too much of a chunk of text to fit it all into main points. There's some bonus points, all right? So let's start with some extra credit. Okay, because one of the, one of the things that you, that you can't help but notice right away when you read the passage of Scripture we just read is, is this startling thing. There is a rich example to us here of the prophetic gifts. I mean, did you see that? Uh, uh, verse 4 says, The disciples at Tyre are telling Paul through the Spirit. Verse 9, Philip's daughters prophesy. Verse 10 and 11, Agabus, in an echo of Jeremiah 27, he prophesies about Paul's captivity. And it makes a really good chance for us as a church to talk about this because one of Crossroads' distinctives is 
that there is an unusually diverse spectrum of beliefs about the Spirit's role in the church represented in our, in our congregation. There are some people for whom this is their favorite topic, and there are some people for whom this is a really um, difficult topic, an unwelcome topic. Our church would be a lot simpler, cleaner, and worse if we didn't have this whole group of people together. But this passage really says a lot to us. Let me divide up our church into two groups. I'm just going to like really broad stroke this. Okay, There's people who are frightened by the spiritual gifts, and there are people who are obsessed with the spiritual gifts. And I know no one fits really neatly into one of those two, but go with me for a second. Okay, Look, if you're like me, you're a little bit frightened by the spiritual gifts. Like, oh, I like things that fit into a neat box, stuff that makes sense. And for people like me, If you're frightened by this, I say the Bible says, let the Bible expand your mind. Let the Bible expand your mind. It's very clear in this text, the Holy Spirit is speaking through believers directly and providing um, providing his input on on the believers there. You see it? I mean, you, you can't, I mean, you just can't miss it. There it is. We shouldn't just skip over it. Secondly, for the second group of people, so sorry, for the first group of people, if you're frightened by this, let the Bible expand your mind. If you're obsessed by this, let the Bible restrict your imagination. Because one of the things you have to notice is the prophetic utterances that are given in this passage are wrong. Do you notice that? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? Just think of, like, look at that. They're all telling him, what are, what, what are the people all telling Paul? They hear from the Spirit and they say to Paul, what are they saying? Yeah, don't go to Jerusalem. Thank you. They're saying don't go to Jerusalem. But it's been very clear Paul's being guided by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Acts 19.21, Acts 20, verses 22 to 24. He's being guided by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So what's happening here? First, the Holy Spirit's not making some mistakes. Holy Spirit's always right. He is the Spirit of truth. He leads people into truth. What's happening is godly, well-meaning people are hearing from the Spirit and they're misinterpreting what it means. Do you see what's happening there? The Spirit is saying that Paul is going to be captive and bound and imprisoned if he goes to Jerusalem. And so the the believers who hear that from the Spirit say to him, then you shouldn't go. Do you see the difference? The Spirit is telling them what will happen and it's being misinterpreted by the people who are hearing from the Spirit. Wow, what a good caution for us. This little kerfuffle gives us a great example. The prophesying believers submit to apostolic authority. Ultimately, they submit to what Paul says. They submit to apostolic authority. Paul is the apostle, and they submit to him. Now, we're called to submit to apostolic authority as well. Hold up your copy of apostolic authority. Yeah, this is it. This is how we know what the apostles said. It's here in this book. Now, we don't have apostles today. There's 12 apostles um, of all time. There's 12. That's why in the book of Revelation, it says the great city has 12 gates, which are the 12 apostles. 12 apostles. If you meet somebody who says that they're an apostle, just think to yourself, he doesn't mean that. Okay? That's what it, there's 12. And the apostles were a great um, key 
institution used by the Lord to establish his church, and the reason why the books in the New Testament are there are because they've been, they're part of the apostolic authority to us. Paul teaches us how to handle prophecy. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 20-21, he says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, he describes the role that the elders of a church are supposed to play in sorting through when things get said. So in the middle of this, well, let me just say one more thing about that. So do you see how this works? We just need to hold with humility, all of us. Those of us who are frightened by the supernatural, by the prophetic, let's not immediately run to, you had some bad pizza. Okay, that is not faith-filled. That is debilitating. That is, um, um, that's, that's immature of us. And I have said those words to people, and I regret them. We should never come to the Bible and expect to find what we expect, Right? As, as people who are like me, the Bible needs to challenge us. Like, oh, it's bigger than I think. It's, it's God cannot be handled by my little boxes. Okay, that's a great reminder. On the other side, we should hold loosely and humbly to what we feel the Lord leading us to and not declare ourselves the authority. Here are some great examples of some very godly people who definitely heard from God and got it wrong. I mean, could that be us? Sometimes we feel like we have something the Lord really wants me to do. We need to bring that to other people. We need to bring that to the Word of God primarily. Is this right? Am I hearing this right? Am I interpreting this right? Am I reacting to this correctly? We need to bring it to the elders of our church, to our church body, and say, like, I feel like the Lord's calling me to this, and hold it with an open hand and faith that will say that God will speak to me not only through the prophetic, but also through apostolic authority and through my church leaders. Wow. In the middle of this, I'm really excited to hear about this guy in verse 16, Manasin of Cyprus, a man whose name I will pronounce differently every time I say it. <laughs> Seriously, Nason, Nason, not sure. The text says that he was an early disciple. Isn't that cool? Okay. And also, we're in one of the parts of Acts that's, that's called the we section. So that means that Luke is with Paul. Okay, so now it says they're there for several days. Luke is getting some one-on-one time with Nason. Maybe a silent G in there, I'm not sure. But, But listen, he's an early disciple. He's got some stories, right? Like he's an early disciple. It says that specifically. So Luke's like, well, this is great. I mean, I'm kind of working on a little book right now called The Gospel of Me. And uh, could you help me with this? Could you help me, like, did he say, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the poor? Nathan's like, well, he said that a couple different times. The one that I remember is blessed is the poor. And Luke's like, all right, Matthew, I'm sorry, man, I think this is it. He put it down. He's hearing stories about Jesus' early ministry from this guy. Here's a great example of why Luke is qualified to write his gospel. He's got an eyewitness right there. Huh? Interesting. I was so interested to hear that. Okay, well, here's the first main point. The main point here, though, is a bit larger. The disciples who were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem were off base because they pursued a life of ease for Paul. But Paul went alone and chose the right thing. So lesson one is Paul had the courage 
to embrace solitude. People around him were saying, don't do that, do this. This will be easier, you won't have to go to prison, this will be simpler, do this. And Paul had the courage to embrace solitude and follow Christ and what God was calling him to do. What a great example for us. What a difficult thing to do. What a hard thing to do to embrace solitude. Christians today, by and large, people today, are very lonely. It's just flat out true. And one of the main reasons Christians are lonely is because we have not learned how to be alone with God. We're lonely because we haven't learned to be alone. And one of the things that really hurts us in this is actually um, social media. If I can just step a little bit to the side and talk for a second. Um, uh, I found a study online that polled women 18 to 34, and I'm not going to simply pick on the ladies. I think it's indicative of us a large scale, but the study I found talked about women ages 18 to 34, so probably a bunch of people in here. 57% say they talk to people online more than face-to-face. 40% of women 18 to 34 proclaim themselves Facebook addicts. 34% of young women make checking Facebook the first thing they do when they wake up, before anything else, before anything else. They made a list of things that they do before. I'm not reading it. Before anything else, that's the first thing they do. 21% of women 18 to 34 check Facebook in the middle of the night. Now, that's, that's funny, except that's a fifth. So the fifth of you are like, well, I thought everybody did that. use Facebook to keep tabs on frenemies, which are friends and enemies combined. Okay, listen, loneliness is a thirst that we all have, but social media is salt water, and it quenches our thirst for a little bit, and then ultimately leaves us empty. It feels like I'm connected with those people because I'm stalking through their Christmas pictures. But I'm not. Like it feels like I have a friendship with them, but so I, I don't have a real one, and so I'm left still feeling as lonely as I did. We have to learn how to be alone with God. Obsessive social media, I'll just try to say this as, as I tried to pull, because I'll be honest, I've checked Facebook very early in the morning as well. Obsess, obsessive social media is a lack of faith. Pull on it all the way out. Okay, what does it mean? What's behind it? Why am I driven by this? One of the things that it says is that somewhere else is better than where God has put me right now. Or it says, someone else is better than the people that I'm with right now. I can just, let me just see how they're doing. I know you're here, but just a second while, I know God put us right now, God, I'm with this, but just a second while I check this other thing, which might be cooler. Do you see how that's a, there's a lack of faith to that? It's, it's a lack of being present with people. It's impoverishing us. Paul had the courage to embrace solitude and to go it alone. Let's move on now. This is verses 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly, which is a pretty big deal since everywhere Paul has been for the last couple of chapters has resulted in a riot. So for him to show up and the, and the brothers to receive him gladly is pretty kind on their part. 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Verse 19. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you. Who told them this? They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, everyone will know there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but you also live in observance of the law. As for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent them a letter back in Acts 15. I'm paraphrasing there. Verse 26, Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. Here's main point number two. Paul has the courage to embrace submission. Paul has the courage to embrace submission. I mean, in a lot of different ways, Paul is like a very driven man. He's got uh, his own sort of ideas. And here comes some people that are spreading slander about him, spreading gossip about him, and he's given a, a plan by James and by the other elders in Jerusalem, and look at the argument he makes. Not a thing. He just, okay, sounds good. Oh, this is very different than the celebrities that we chase. Than the people we follow, we don't follow people who submit. Submission is a chronically um, uh, attacked word. I've been to four weddings in the last two months or so, and each wedding sermon has defended the word submission. Have you noticed this? It's like, well, you know, this world doesn't get submission, and this is why. But here's an example. Celebrities, for example, are typified by self-reliance. It's the force of their personalities. They march to the beat of their own drum. They are true to themselves. I heard, you know, just the constant refrain is, I just got to be me. I got to be true to myself. Well, there's no merit in being obnoxious, even if it's authentic obnoxiousness. There's nothing good about being authentic if you're authentically obnoxious. Does that make sense? But the Christian life is marked by the free and spontaneous giving of yourself in self-forgetful and uncalculating ways. Look how Paul demonstrates this. He's being slandered. He's being gossiped on. And then people are like, well, here's the plan for how to solve that. And he's like, okay. I mean, in Paul's flesh, here's how he would deal with it. Paul's a really good arguer, a really good arguer. We have books of the Bible that prove that, okay? And he, let's get everybody in a room and let me tell you why circumcision isn't everything and why this, and I'm going to explain my whole thing, and he just, he just accepts it. He follows. What a great example to us. There was a man who said, preach, see if you can name who did this quote, preach the gospel and be forgotten. Do you know who said that? I forgot. Preach the gospel and be forgotten. It's like live your life in a way that people see the gospel and don't necessarily remember the person who said that. Not, uh, Not impacting people with the force of your personality or who you are, but that they see Christ. They see Christ. 
Well, this ends up, this great plan that Paul submitted to ends up going horribly wrong. And this is where the text needs to move so quickly that I'm going to start summarizing. This is basically um, verse 27 through verse 40. Um, The people have seen Paul with a Gentile named Trophimus. And when they see Paul entering the temple later with these four guys, they assume that he's bringing Trophimus, the Gentile, into the temple. And that means he's defiling the temple. And so they start a riot. Again, another riot for Paul. And they're beating Paul like crazy until some Roman soldiers show up and they, the soldiers break it up. And the soldiers have broken up the mob and now they're trying to find out why is this mob, why is this happening? And they're trying to ask Paul and they're trying to ask the people what's going on and everybody's shouting at the same time. So they decide that they, it's too loud for them to hear. So they decide to bring Paul, but that's too difficult. So they end up carrying Paul to their barracks so they can sort things out. And on the step of their barracks, they've brought them all the way. The mob is still following them, trying to... They get to the barracks. They're on the step of the barracks, and Paul asks one of the the main soldiers if he can address the mob with a speech. He asks the soldier in Greek to show that he's educated, and the soldier's like, wow, you you speak Greek? Okay, go ahead. And then Paul turns to the crowd and speaks in Hebrew. So, like, way to go, Paul. That's pretty choice. He's speaking um, Greek to convince them he's educated. He speaks Hebrew to the mob to show that he is, has Jewish conviction. And what does he tell them? This is, ver- this is chapter 22, verses 1 through 21. He tells them his testimony. He tells them what God has done, who he was, how he was zealous for the law, and how God turned him around. This brings us to bonus point number two. Paul gives his testimony. He just plays the supernatural. I love this. I love how God, okay, most people in the church, okay, raise your hand if you grew up in the church. Grew up in the church, okay? This is most people. Yep, me, five-year-old, um, asked my mom if I was going to heaven uh, when I die, because I heard her and dad talking about going to heaven. I wanted to make sure I was with them. You know, like mom's Bible, me kneeling by my bed, five years old. Grew up in the church. That's the way most things, um, most Christians not, not everyone, but that's the way most things. Now, God likes to mess with that. God loves to stir that up by adding some like wild card people in later. How many of you are wild card people that came to Christ as adults? Amen. This is fantastic. And whenever I start to get like discouraged about the church, it's good to remind, to remind myself of this. Like whenever I start to feel like, oh, you know, like John Stott died this year or just the end of last year. What a great Christian man. What a great Christian leader. And I was just reading some people like, where are the new John Stotts going to come from? And I was feeling that too. And then I kind of remembered, well, well, God doesn't have to necessarily bring him up from here. God can get um, Christians from anywhere. You've thought about that and the faith that that can give you? Like Christianity is not genetic. It's not like, okay, I'm hoping my son right here who's taking notes, I'm loving that. I'm hoping that he follows Christ loves Jesus more than I do. That's what I'm hoping. But that's not the only way that the kingdom gets built. Look at the Apostle Paul. Okay, just look at the guy who is hating, chasing, killing Christians. They're scared, and Christ is like, okay, let's put them on our team. Okay? Now, this has happened all throughout Christianity. And just get some faith from it, okay? Do you believe that God could... 
have the person in charge of abortions in Grand Rapids saved, meet the Savior, changed completely, different heart, I want to open an orphanage. Do you believe that could happen? Okay, now listen. Let's have some faith about that. Let's have some faith about that because Ephesians 3.20 tells me that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Okay? Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So I'm thinking, if he can do more than what I can think, I'm going to start thinking. (laughs) Who's with me? Okay? So this is why about two years, three years ago, I prayed for 30 days that God would save Bill Gates. Why not? He can do more than I think. I'm thinking Bill Gates. I think that would be really great. I think he could tithe. (laughs) I'm thinking um, wells in Haiti are nice, but solid gold wells in Haiti would be amazing. Just get some faith about it. Like, do you see people, like Saul of Tarsus was the one killing Christians. Like, that's such the, the wrong thing. And then he becomes the leader in the church, okay? Is the gospel too short to save some of these people? No, God is powerful enough to do this. I'm thinking, I mean, just like, let your heart break for this lady, Kim Kardashian. Like, who's, what's her view of herself? What does she think she's on this planet to do? And, and... I can only judge from what you see and the publicity that she puts out. But wouldn't it be great if the Lord got a hold of that lady and just changed her and gave her a vision for her identity as the daughter of the king and, and gave her a new, self of, a new sense of self-worth? I mean, could she be the next Mother Teresa? With the gospel, yeah. I'm thinking she could make a great Mrs. Tebow. I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's not beyond what God can do. God says he can do more than what I can ask or think, and so I'm starting to think. And then what that does is that lets me build my faith. Listen, listen, God can do this. God can do this. Let's let ourselves have some faith about it. The gospel is not genetic. It is supernatural. Okay, so that's bonus point number two. Let's, get, let's keep going on the text. So here's, here's how the testimony is going. This is verse uh, 22 through verse 30 or so. Yeah, through the end of that chapter. The testimony is going well because everybody likes a story until the part comes where God calls Paul to go to the Gentiles. Then the mob goes nuts. Gentiles is the exact thing why they're a mob right now. So the soldiers have to pull him into the barracks for interrogation by torture. And suddenly Paul plays his Roman citizen card again. Well, that's interesting. Why didn't he pull his Roman citizen card out in front of the mob? Well, because you don't want to stand in front of a Jewish mob that accuses you of bringing Gentiles into the temple and then declare that you're a Roman citizen. That's why. So when he's in the Roman barracks, he's like, guys, you're binding me. Remember, you can't do that to a Roman citizen. And they freak out. You're a Roman citizen? Yes, he is. So suddenly, okay. They unbind him, no torture. So to sort the whole thing out, they decide to bring him to the chief priests and the council. This is verses 22 through 30. Okay, now in the next chapter, Paul appears before the Sanhedrin. Verses 1 through 5 go like this. Paul says one sentence, and the high priest breaks the law and orders Paul struck. And Paul calls him on it. 
you just broke the law. He's got some really good insults in there. Um, if you're 13, don't memorize them. They don't work. I've tried. <laughs> and then Paul apologizes because insulting the high priest is against the law. So Paul's demonstrating, you're trying to judge me by the law. You're breaking the law. But then I just broke the law. Just to let you know who's a law expert in here, it's me, not even the high priest. Okay? Verses 6 through 9, Paul splits the council by proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. Because you've got Pharisees, you've got Sadducees. Pharisees believe in the resurrection, Sadducees don't. So Paul's sort of like, well, okay, it's the resurrection of the dead, and the room goes nuts after each other. And so verse 10, the council turns violent. Okay, it comes to, verse 9 says, there's a great clamor arose. Verse 10 says, and when the dissension became violent, okay, now the Roman soldiers come in and rescue Paul again from another mob, a mob of Jewish religious leaders. What type of cat fighting was that? That's pretty great. And they bring him back to the barracks. So here's, here's the third main point from this. Paul had the courage to speak with boldness. Paul had the courage to speak with boldness. Paul had the courage to embrace solitude. Paul had the courage to embrace um, submission. And Paul had the courage to speak with boldness. You see it? How he's just like here, standing in front of the people. He's like, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Let me just tell you. Interesting. In some ways, it's kind of easy to pull the parachute right now and say, well, that's it. So to be... Here's the type of people we should follow. Ones who have solitude, submission, and boldness. And then you, yourselves, need to go live a life of, of solitude that follows God only, that submits, and that's bold. There it is. Now go and do it. That's interesting, but it's, it's, it's premature. Because one of the things that you see in this, and even some of the commentaries that I took a peek at, start to draw out the parallels that Paul is the new Jesus. Do you see it in the text that we just went through, the three chapters we just walked through? Paul went to Jerusalem when people told him not to. Well, Jesus went to Jerusalem when people told him not to. Paul went in to the temple for purity. Oh, Jesus. Remember when Jesus went down there? Jesus went into the temple for purity. He's tipping tables and whips and stuff. A mob unrighteously accused Paul of something he did, a crime he didn't do. That's the same thing that happened to Jesus. So then Paul was dragged before the religious leaders and treated unjustly. That's the same thing that happened to Jesus. Back and forth and back and forth. Paul is Paul the new Jesus. No. No. But if you stop here, you start to think that faith is merely a cycle. It's just a pattern that we go through. And that what we do... Jesus' main job in coming to this earth was to show us a new pattern for us to follow, that his main job was to be an example, and that is not good enough. We're built to follow, but when we idolize celebrities, and when we idolize people, it's exactly that. It's idolizing. Okay? The word idolize has at the front of it this word idol. It's not, that's, that's a bad word for us as Christians. I was working at a church in Chicago that had a really large worship center. And so people were always calling us like, hey, we'd like to do a concert at your church. We want to do a filming thing at your church. It's like a 2,000-seat auditorium. People wanted to use it. I remember I got a phone call one time from a, a lady who said that we want to film a, um, a Christian version of American Idol at your church. I was like, oh, 
Um, why? She's like, well, it's going to be huge. We're going to bring in all these people. It's going to be called Christian Idol. <laughs> I was like, I don't think those two words play nice together. Okay, just let's, let's reclaim the word idol as something bad, okay? When we chase after things, they ultimately disappoint us. The problem with the deadly cycle of following Jesus only as a pattern sets us up into the deadly thinking of we're the new Jesus. We are not the new Jesus. There is an incredible amount of difference between the redeemed and the redeemer, Okay, let's not catch that. There are best-selling books that declare to us that Jesus' ministry was an example for us to follow. But Jesus didn't come to earth and die on a cross and say, it can be done. He said, it is finished. Did it. When, <laughs> look at our words, solitude, submission, and boldness. When he ascended to heaven, Jesus didn't say, Pursue solitude, because solitude without God is just pride, proud isolation. When he ascended, he didn't say, pursue submission, because submission without God is just lazy passivity. When he ascended, he didn't say, pursue boldness, because boldness without God is just obnoxious rashness. And there are, let me just, I I had to pick on the ladies a little earlier with social media. Guys, like we can go bold in a very idiotic way. Male pattern boldness <laughs> is something that we really need to treat. We really need to treat. But listen, here's what Jesus said when he ascended. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Look at verse I want to close with this. This is my favorite thing. Verse 23, sorry, chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul. So he's in the barracks. He's arrested. He's been falsely accused. Two mobs in one day. He's proclaiming it. Jesus says, comes, stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God's presence and God's promise Give us the strength to live the Christian life. God's presence and God's promise give us the strength to live the Christian life. Spirit-filled solitude. It, the, God's presence and promise give us the spirit-filled solitude of being alone with the Savior who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Where did he say that? Where's that, that precious promise? I love that verse. Where is that? Hebrews. Hebrews 13.5, okay? Like, Get some specific promises that you can hold on to, and not a generic, hard-to-grab. He said that he'd be with me. That's hard to grab. When you can say, Jesus, you promised in your word that you would never leave me or forsake me. Hebrews 13, 5, it gives a strength to your faith. It gives us the spirit-filled submission of bowing my knee to God, knowing that this is Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases. It gives us the spirit-filled boldness from knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's Romans 8.31. Christian growth is not arriving at some point of strength where we need Jesus less and less because we're getting better and better. Not so. Not so. 
Let me close with this. Do you want to be a celebrity for God? Do you want to be a superstar for Jesus? When the sun comes out, all the stars fade away. When the sun comes out, all the stars fade away. Let's pray. Our great God, we just confess to you um, sometimes the, we get fooled and there are just two impossibilities in the world. One, so that our strength can get us a good relationship with you and secondly, that our goodness can maintain a relationship with you. And God, we, we get the first ones wrong. We know we need your grace and your strength to find you and to embrace you as Savior. But God, we also want to admit that we need your grace moving forward to grow into the people that you want us to become, that we don't grow stronger in ourselves and need you less. God, but our hearts are filled with fear and with unbelief because our eyes are on ourselves and we know we can't do it. Holy Spirit, grow our faith. Give us spirit-empowered boldness, spirit-empowered faith that sees the accomplishment of Christ on the cross and flies and floods our hearts with that power this morning. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Could you stand your feet? We're going to teach you a new song.